so this is a bit of a communion and a main sermon, so kind of mixed together. Um, first of all, I want to apologize to any men in the room that are uncomfortable with being called Brother Christ. Um, in this message, you'll have to get used to it, unfortunately, as it's kind of the focal point of the uh, for us ladies, it's a little bit more familiar territory, but I know some of us are guys, it's not wording that we're used to hearing about yourself. Um, so basically this morning, I wanted to share a message that actually connects in with the return of Christ. I came across a documentary a number of years ago that discussed and taught on the Galilean wedding, and this teaching has forever changed the way I view communion, the return of Christ, and end times. So today I would like to share with you some of what I learned. When we think about end times, we often focus on the question of when will Christ return? However, a much better question is why is Christ returning? Why not just die and then go be with him? Why does he even refer to us as his bride? Now, I can't unfortunately give you these answers, um, but what I can do is share with you some of the information that the disciples knew because it was part of their culture. When Jesus chose his disciples, all 12 of them were Galileans, not just Jews, but Galileans. And when he taught his disciples, he often taught them by using their own culture as a reference point in order for them to fully grasp what he was communicating. There were cultural norms and activities practiced in Galilee that were specific to the people of Galilee. Once we start to learn these cultural norms, we begin to see the ministry of Jesus as not just disjointed sets of teachings, but we begin to get a fuller and clearer picture of what he said and of what he said and how they relate to us today. One of these cultural practices was an engagement and wedding ceremony. As I discussed the proposal, preparation, and wedding feast that was customary within the Galilean culture, you will see many parallels with what Jesus taught us regarding his return. So betrothal is the first um, stage. So, the, uh, sorry, or an engagement ceremony, betrothal engagement ceremony. So when a betrothal took place, that happened at the main gates of the town. Everyone that was available would go and see it. The elders sat at the town gates and all legal agreements took place here. If you remember in the story of Boaz and Ruth, it was at the town gates that Boaz negotiated with Ruth's relative and the elders of the city in order to marry Ruth. Similarly here, crowds of people would gather around to witness the engagement take place. And this was really important as it provided the witnesses to make the engagement official. Next, the bride would be given a written covenant of marriage and asked if she agreed to the terms. The terms of marriage are clearly laid out, and if the bride agrees to these terms, then there can be no change in them. Both families then agree, and gifts are exchanged with the most extravagant going to the bride. The dowry, contrary to other cultures in the day, is not a purchase price but it's an insurance policy to take care of the bride in the event that anything would happen to her husband in the future. I just thought that was really neat because, you know, it, it puts so much more importance on the role of a bride in this culture. The groom is then handed a pitcher of wine. The groom pours the wine into a ceremonial cup that he then offers to his bride-to-be. The cup is called the cup of joy 
and the bride can either choose to accept or reject this cup, therefore choosing to accept or reject this offer of marriage. The moment the cup is handed to the bride, she is given all power to stop the wedding by pushing the cup back and rejecting the groom. This practice was unusual to other cultures around them, and that the bride had all authority to reject the groom. No marriage was forced on a Galilean woman. The betrothal could not be completed without her willingness to drink from the cup of wine. After the bride has taken her sip, the groom then takes the wine and drinks also. This act solidifies the new covenant. Then the groom says publicly so that everyone can hear, you are now consecrated to me by the law of Moses, and I will not drink of this cup again until I drink it anew with you in my father's house. At the Last Supper, Jesus also offered a cup of wine to his disciples to signify a new covenant with them. And after they drank, Jesus said to them, I tell you, I will not drink from the fruit of this wine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. When Jesus broke bread and drank wine with his disciples, he was signifying a new covenant with them and with us. In this simple act, he was revealing to them their new position as his bride-to-be. So the year of preparation is next. After the betrothal ceremony, everyone goes back to their homes and the year of preparation begins. Although technically now wife and husband, the groom leaves the bride and they will now live apart from one another until the day of their wedding feast. And often during this time, they will not even get to see one another. This time period is usually around a year. During this time, the groom prepares for the time he is to be reunited with his bride. His main job is to build a room onto his father's house. Over the following months, he acquires all of the materials needed to build their new home, along with creating everything that is to go inside it. At the Last Supper, Jesus also said to his disciples, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you may also be where I am. During this time, the bride's job is to prepare herself for the time that her groom will come to get her. She needs to buy the cloth for her wedding dress, and this could be a difficult and costly task. Likewise, Revelation 19.7 states, Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. In the same way that the bride has to prepare all the materials for her dress, we too need to prepare ourselves. Once the dress was prepared, the bride needed to remain vigilant and pure as she waited for her groom, no matter how long it took. The bride needed to always be ready. A bride would not just sit and wait, but would occupy herself until her groom arrived. Because here is the strange thing about a Galilean wedding. Neither the groom nor the bride knew the hour that the wedding would take place. No one in the town knew. Only the father of the groom knew the day and the hour that the wedding was happening. The father of the groom was the person who would create and read the conditions of the wedding on behalf of his son during the betrothal, and he provided the payment for the dowry. He would send the son to the bride and her family to propose. 
was the only one who knew the secret about when the sun could retrieve his bride. This practice was unique to a Galilean wedding. All other weddings in the area were arranged for a certain time and day. Only the Galileans' wedding was kept secret. Isn't it interesting that Jesus often referred to the Father as the one who sent me? The groom would complete the room for his bride and all of the preparations for the wedding, and then he would go to his father and say, Father, I want my bride. And the father's response to his son would be, I will tell you when. And now we come to the very much awaited wedding day. The day would arrive when the father would fetch his son and tell him to go and get his bride. However, that hour that the father would tell his son to fetch her would not be during the day, but it would be in the middle of the night. Why? I don't know. <laughs> As the groom slept, the father would go, wake him up, and tell him the time has come. The groom would then blow the shofar to wake up the village and the bride and her family. The groom's party would walk through the streets, blowing the trumpets to wake the bride and guests. Only those that were prepared and knew the bride and groom would be ready to rise to join the procession. The groom would arrive at the house of the bride, filled with excitement about finally being able to retrieve her. The bride would come outside and meet him dressed in her gown, finally reunited after over three years. During this time, the bride would often sleep in her wedding dress, and the bridesmaids always in their white linens, ready just in case the groom would show up. Can we just reflect on this for a moment? The bride would sleep in her wedding dress. Now, I can just picture today's gowns that would not happen. But how uncomfortable would that be, night after night, in your wedding dress, and then during the day, cleaning it and making it ready again? Like, just the devotion and the effort and, like, perseverance in that is just phenomenal. Um, but isn't that how we're supposed to live? You know, every day, purifying ourselves, and then at night, being ready, being vigilant, awaiting his return. Because it is sudden, only those who have an active part in the wedding are prepared, awake and ready. Those who are not actively involved are literally asleep. Matthew 25 may make a little more sense in this context. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil and jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, our lamps are going out. No, they replied, There may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil, buy some for yourself. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. Later the others came out. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly I tell you, I don't know. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day of the hour. After fetching his bride, the Galilean procession returned to their father's house, the feast is set, and the door is shut behind them. No one leaves, and no one comes in for seven days and nights. If you were locked out, there was no way to enter. 
So as you can see, the disciples are very familiar with what Jesus is saying here. This is literally embedded into their culture. And again, this message is very familiar to us. We need to be in a relationship with Jesus in order to spend eternity with him. If we are not ready for his return, then we don't get to partake. We can't rely on those around us to carry oil for us. Although having godly parents or a godly spouse is helpful for our walk, ultimately what matters is how much oil we personally have. When the going gets tough or the situation gets darker, power our oil levels. Oil is often used in scripture as a symbol of the Holy Spirit. Have we spent enough time cultivating a relationship with the Holy Spirit and allowing him to fill us with his truth? From the moment we first receive Jesus into our lives and hearts, we enter an active waiting process. How are we spending this waiting time? Are we active or are we passive? With no set date for the wedding, I can imagine how easy it would be to become tired in the waiting. I imagine it would have been hard always keeping the dress clean and it would have been far more comfortable sleeping in ordinary clothing. How many of us get tired in our waiting also? Maybe a little lazy, no longer sleeping in our gowns but finding something easier. Striving for righteousness in our walk is not always easy or comfortable. Or maybe we are striving in our own strength instead of the strength of the oil. Notice Jesus doesn't condemn the virgins for sleeping but for the lack of oil that they carried. It was ten foolish and ten wise, but they were all sleeping. <laughs> when I learned all of these incredible connections between the Galilean wedding and the different things Jesus spoke to the disciples before his death and resurrection, it struck me just how weighty communion is. The wedding process described here started with betrothal and with a cup of wine. And today we're going to take communion. But as you take the bread and drink the wine, consider the depth of what the wine represents. Imagine the disciples during the Last Supper hearing words from Jesus that were so familiar to them, listening to his teaching about his return, but with an understanding of how a wedding and an engagement takes place. If you will, imagine Jesus standing before you, offering you a covenant. Do you accept the cup that he is offering? Like the bride who had total authority to reject the groom, Jesus gives us the choice to accept or reject his offer. But also consider this, as we take the cup, that it is not one-sided. We are not just receiving him as husband and lord of our life, but we are giving ourselves wholeheartedly to him also. The world today tells us that marriage is something that is totally conditional. We see this all around us. More and more society has lost its understanding of what a covenant is. Marriage is something that people often try out in hopes that it will work, but if it doesn't, there's always divorce. What God's offer is total faithfulness and everlasting love. And so, as we take communion, as I take it, often I view it as a proposal of marriage. We get to be part of this beautiful relationship that God has designed between the Godhead and the church. With this in mind, consider how it is that we are waiting for our groom. Are we waiting actively or passively? Are we keeping the gown clean or do we drag it through the mud? The year the bride waits for her groom is a year of being set apart, holy and pure. If we consider our hearts, how are we faring? As I close in prayer, I encourage you to take the cup and bread in your own time. 
if someone can come up and hand it up. Um, and just reflect on everything that it means. It is a symbol of the sacrifice of Jesus, his death and resurrection, and the gift of salvation. But it is also entering into a covenant relationship with the Almighty God himself. Awesome. So we can start handing it out. And I'm just going to pray. Father, thank you for your covenant and all that it means. Thank you for giving your life for us so that we too can live. You sacrificed everything for us and we pray too that in our time of waiting for your return, that we can fulfill our role as your bride and live a life of purity, obedience and faithfulness. Help us to stay steadfast, help us to stay awake and help us to stay ready. Lord, as we take this cup and this wine, we pray that you would give us a true sense of what it is that we are entering into. That this is not a one-sided covenant, but that we too have an active role in this. Help us to live a life pleasing to you, where you are first and foremost our top priority. Holy Spirit, would you come, shine a light into the areas of our lives that are not pleasing or submitted to you. Thank you for your love. In Jesus' name.